Hello, 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 and welcome to Series 2 of Hidden in Plain Sight, the podcast where we look at evidence showing that famed Elizabethan playwright Christopher Marlowe did not die in 1593. If you are new to us, we are absolutely delighted that you have decided to join our little podcast adventure. If you haven't already done so, do go back and listen to Series 1 and get up to speed. And don't forget to follow us on our mailing list. I'm your host, Julian M, and back with me is Dr. Peter Hodges, director, playwright, and author of Marlowe's Complaint, the book that started it all. This time around, though, I am also very, very excited to introduce you to someone who was hidden out of sight and sound in the previous podcast. But here she is in full living color, Carol Paxton. Welcome back, guys. Hello, Julian. Well, I don't know about you both, but I'm very, very excited about our new series. And for this first episode, I thought we could switch things up a bit and respond to some of the many questions our listeners have sent our way from the first series. I think let's start off with a question from Loretta Hobson. She writes, would a poem such as Venus and Adonis, that's generally attributed to Shakespeare, have been sent to the stationer's register if it were a personal verse for Lord Southampton? She thinks that publication was not necessarily followed by printing, but it strikes her that a high degree of confidentiality would have surrounded any such pieces written solely for Henry Risley, especially if commissioned by Lord Burley. What do you think about that, Peter? Well, you know, I was thinking about this even today. And when we originally thought about doing this this review of the mail, my thought drifted to the first 17 sonnets, which I believe were made as a gift similarly to uh, Risley back when he was turning 17. But I think there's an even more significant and more apropos comparison to be made. Simultaneous, almost, with Venus and Adonis being submitted to the stationers was Hero and Leander, also submitted to the stationers, which also was unpublished, at least at the time. And so I don't think it's at all untypical. If you want to publish something, and and correct me if I'm wrong, Carol, but if you wanted to publish something in England at the time, publication required that you go through a series of steps. Part of that was to get past the censor. The next stage, conceivable, and I don't know the order, but another stage would be the registration with the stationer so that publication could then ensue because it had official acknowledgement of the intent to publish. And the the other example that you can use here where, you know, publication without submission to the stationer was not viewed favorably is the Marprelate event. These people had their own printing press. They were dodging the authorities because of the fact that they were printing all of these scandalous things about Whitgift and the church, and they had to take the thing apart and move it from place to place. And they finally 
probably had at least one of them destroyed, possibly more, because the printing press itself was that type of an object. It was rare, it was unique, and only people who were authorized could use it. So if you were planning to make a personal gift, even if you were Lord Burley, and even if that gift was going to someone like Southampton, it was necessary for you to register that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think you can't get away from the fact that Field, who printed it, was a, a semi-official printer to Burley. He printed a lot of things for Burley, including actually the Paul Ives book, which Marlowe raided for Tamburlaine too. The infamous description of the siege of the city, which is basically a paraphrase of Ives's work. And that was a book printed for Burley uh, by Field. But Field, if you like, was a very straight down the line sort of printer. He was a semi-official government printer. There is, in my view, absolutely no chance that he would ever have printed anything without going through all the official channels. And he was right to do so, because as you mentioned with the Mar Prelate affair, if you used a printing press to print unauthorised material, the penalty was often seizure and destruction of that printing press, effectively a destruction of your livelihood. So I think that it is inevitable that if Field was going to produce a printed copy, he would have got the paperwork in order because it would have been professional suicide for him not to. <laughs> yeah. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I just want to point out, this is why we have Carol. <laughs> also, I think we might um, say that uh, Field does give the impression of being a, a very possibly bordering on the Puritan side of the religious divide and somebody for whom the letter of the law would have mattered, you know, doing the right thing. That's perhaps rather speculative. But the other bit is, well, it's just historical fact. I can't believe he would have printed anything without going through the proper channels. Yeah, and it wouldn't have hurt Burley to have it registered. I mean, he, he's using a printer that he normally uses, stationer records it. Nobody else can get their hands on it. Uh, this is a very simple process, but it's all on the up and up as well. So exactly. anybody yeah. who wants to make noise about this, dip, you know, we've got everything signed, sealed and delivered. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think that's answered that nicely. And I think there is room for us to discuss this as we go through the rest of the series. So perhaps it would be a good time as any for our newest member, Carol, to do a little intro about herself to our listeners. Well, I think I probably first encountered Marlowe when I was about seven or eight years old in a delightful story called Tom Turnspit, which was a short story which told how the smallest, youngest and most put-upon boy in the kitchen of a castle saw his way to redemption via a travelling actor's playing Dr Faustus. And that would be when I very first met the name Christopher Marlowe. Then jump forward many, many years and I suppose to 1993, was it, when Anthony Burgess published A Dead Man in Deptford, which I read that. And I also read at that time a 
book by Graham Phillips called The Shakespeare Conspiracy, which makes a wonderful case for Marlowe and then suddenly goes off on a tangent about Shakespeare being the spy, at which point I found John Mitchell's very well-known book on the Shakespeare authorship, read it, realised that of all the cases, the only one that had the remotest credibility was Marlowe. And then I started reading the plays. Here I have to make an embarrassing admission of being a lifelong heavy metal fan, and I just loved Tamperley. <laughs> oh, this is fantastic. <laughs> it's it's wonderful, over-the-top I don't know, I'm trying to think of a song that everybody knows. Stairway to Heaven. You have the quiet passages and the melodic bits, i.e. Xenocrity. Then you have the great thumping solos with Tampanade. And I just thought, I love this. I really love this. And, yeah, take it from there, really. <laughs> and that, listeners, is why Carol is such an amazing addition to our team, because she just sees things from a completely different perspective. And I'm sure this will become very, very apparent as we go through this second series. But mostly it's because I genuinely love the poetry. And I do have to say that one thing that intensely annoys me about the whole SAQ field is the numbers of people who seem to have no feeling whatsoever for the work as poetry, as beautifully expressed thought in English, and see it as some weird set of parlour games, clues to some wonderful mystery and some great revelation about, Lord alone knows what buried treasure. I, I think some Baconians yeah. even stretched the river wide looking for <laughs> All those anagrams and acrostics and yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I say parlor games, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's just weird. <laughs> Our second letter comes to us all the way from Hungary from Paul Falkland. A very simple one-liner. Where can I find the handwritten letter of Marlowe to Thomas Walsingham? That's, yeah, boy, I wish I had an answer for that. <laughs> I'll take uh, responsibility for the confusion here because in order to make a dramatic point out of this, I want to refer to the sonnets as correspondence, and in particular, the sonnets having to do with the rival poet. These things are obviously addressed, not just the rival poet sequence, but all of the sonnets are addressed at a personal level to whoever this or, or this individual or individuals are who have this man's attention. And from my perspective, it's Marlowe writing to Walsingham, as we showed, I think more to Lady Audrey than even to Thomas, but as we showed in our season one broadcast. And you're never going to find just as we labor over finding original texts and manuscripts for plays and or all of the other poems that were written and published during this period. I mean, you'll find a, a piece of paper somewhere along the way, but it is extremely rare to find original manuscripts from any author of that period and there is no such thing as the original manuscript of these letters. However, we do have original publications 
of those letters. They are printed, and I believe, in the order in which they were written. And those are the sonnets commonly known as Shakespeare's sonnets, which were actually penned by Christopher Marlowe. So sorry about that, but you can find it in any bookstore anywhere in the world. Uh, just walk in and find the Shakespeare section in that bookstore, and there will be Christopher Marlowe's letters. And they pretty much, you can get them online for free. Is it worth mentioning that Calvin Hoffman believed that the uh, original manuscripts were buried in the Walshingham tomb? And I think in the sometime in the 80s, he actually got permission to open part of the monument and found nothing but sand. And if you look on YouTube, you can actually find a almost parte newsreel style clip uh, in which he appears wearing a rather splendid hat and explains what he's going to do. But uh, he didn't, uh, by the way, open the full tomb. He only opened part of the monument. So even though I don't believe he would find anything if he went further, that's... Uh, yeah, the monument was a dead end and he wasn't going to be yeah. allowed to dig up the vault. And I, and why on earth would Walsingham want to have Marlowe's original sonnets buried with him? Yeah, the only thing I've ever thought about it is the case of, in the 19th century, of uh, Rossetti. He had quite a lot of his poems buried with Lizzie Siddle, his famous model with the, the woman with the beautiful auburn hair he painted. And quite a few of his poems were buried in a casket in her coffin. And eventually he decided he wanted them back. And it's rather gruesomely she was exhumed to rescue the casket of the letters. <laughs> so perhaps Hoffman was thinking on those lines. Well, he was a newspaper man, right? So, yes. you know. <laughs> and, and it's a wonderfully gothic story. The, uh... Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> wow, wow, wow. Well, given that Marlowe was buried in an unmarked grave somewhere, I mean, that would probably be a bit of a stretch to try and do that. Uh, well, thank you, guys. Our next question comes from Diana Holbrook in Canterbury. And she found the fact that Lord Burley owned the Muscovy Wharf very interesting and that it showed more links to the collusion in the plot to save Marlowe. She was wondering if they had actually recorded passengers in those days in the form of a ship's manifest, perhaps. Any thoughts? I'm not. I'm not really um, an authority on on English shipping in the Elizabethan period. But just generally speaking, I would think that if you were trying to sneak somebody out of England on a ship and you were the Secretary of State of England at the time and you owned both the ship and the wharf, you could make it so that a person could be secreted aboard that ship and the manifest would not display his name. So that's that's a bit of a wild goose to try and locate. The one thing that I think is more likely than not is that, you know, there's been some discussion back and forth about did he leave London and go to Dover and then on to Calais or someplace like that. Um, and I think really the number of stops that you need to make, the fewer, the better. 
And if there is a, a path for Marlowe to get to the continent, the most direct route is from London to Flushing. It's a commonly used route to the degree that there's safety in such a thing. That would not be an unlikely voyage and one that the, most of the sailors on that ship would be experienced to doing. So whatever the weather is in the channel and so forth, they'd have some sense of what, of how to deal with it. And Marlowe could be moved comfortably and secretly. And being secret, there's no manifest. Or the other alternative would be that um, Burley could simply give him the paperwork for an official messenger. Yeah, which of course he was in many cases. Yeah. So. Yes. And yeah, there's no such thing as an ID photograph on a passport. So if he gave him the documentation for an official messenger in the name of Mr. WH something. Or, <laughs> or Mr. Ledoux. <laughs> We've been, let us never forget Mr. Ledoux. Oh, yes. oh wow. Okay. I can see <laughs> that we're going to dig a deeper and deeper hole for ourselves. But I love how we're bringing everything together, all the different um, theories and conspiracies. This is fantastic. <laughs> okay. Well, talking about the multiple aliases idea, uh, we have had several letters to this effect from Irene Pickering and also from Bastian Conrad from Germany. They are also wanting us to address this about, you know, whether or not maybe Marlowe was the true Shakespeare and that Shakespeare might have been one of many pseudonyms of Marlowe's after 1593. What do you think about that? I think that's a difficult case to make. And what I understand of the case, it sort of falls similarly into the realm of taking, you know, the fictional story of some of the plays and mating that with the theory of Marlowe's exile and then positing all sorts of activities of Marlowe uh, based upon whatever was going on in the plays. And in this case, what they're doing is finding similar themes to things that we find in the work attributed to Shakespeare and themes in other writers who echo or parallel or, you know, simply show the same concern that is shown in some of these works attributed to Shakespeare. And so at that point, then, it strikes these individuals that the same person must have written all of that. I don't think that's a very strong case. I have yet to see, let's put it this way, any original source material or any commentary that strongly supports it. And the other thing is, is that it's very unwieldy. I, I, you know, you've already got a guy who, in the person of Shakespeare, who's been sworn to keep his place and and knows his job. He's got an arrangement whereby he's going to profit by it. Evidently, he did very well by it. And he doesn't step out of line ever. We, we can say this simply on the basis of what happened. We, you know, we know so little about Shakespeare as anything other than a straight up businessman that it's clear if you look at it through a Marlowe prism, that Shakespeare was keeping his counsel 
very carefully. Highly unlikely to me that other poets, Michael Drayton, as a for instance, who is a known person who had his own individual patrons and published his own work and so on, then would allow his name to be used to make publication of something written by Christopher Marlowe surreptitiously. What's the point? I've already got a way of getting him into print. I don't need to add all these other characters into it. I don't need half a dozen other names. There's just no benefit to Marlowe. In fact, it increases the risk. So I, I have to say, until I see better proof of this, I'm just going to say that's just coincidence and nothing more. Yeah, I, I, I fully agree. And I think as well, you can't ignore the fact that the amount of writing that even a person who is very used to doing it can produce using a quill pen, the number of words you can write <laughs> a day. I mean, yes, we have obviously have Victorian novelists who, especially those who wrote for serial publication, who wrote tens of thousands of words, but they had steel nib pens and they had good quality with artificial light, with oil lamps. Neither of those things existed in the Elizabethan and Jacobean era. So I think there are physical difficulties with producing the quantity of work that somebody is like Bastian Conrad assigns. Also, I do think there are things worth looking at, but that are not plays, because we do know from Thomas Kidd and the Baines note that Marlowe had, quote, read the atheist lecture to Raleigh and his associates. And there is certainly, if you read, and Charles Nichols is very good on this, there is an implication that there was some type of manuscript book, basically on a theological and philosophical theme. We have then, a few years later, Thomas Nash, um, as a sort of throwaway remark, saying that Marlowe, quote, didn't write The Three Impostors, The Three Impostors being a possibly mythical book on the founders of the three Abrahamic religions, Moses, Christ and Muhammad. But the fact that Nash felt compelled to say that he didn't write this might be because he was known to have written other somewhat heretical theological and philosophical works. So I do think there might have been at one stage something of that nature, but I doubt very much it would have survived because it would he would have great difficulty in printing it. So if it ever existed, it only existed as manuscript. I want to say something here, because this idea that Marlowe dabbled in in heretical thinking is a line of thought that really guides a lot of the interpretation, especially of people who, you know, are favorable to the theory that Marlowe wrote the work attributed to Shakespeare. The, the, the notion is, is that because Marlowe was an atheist slash heretic, he had to be exiled because he was promoting these ideas. I mean, I don't think there's any reason why Marlowe wouldn't study things like that and be fully aware of them. I, I don't go with the notion that he was an active proponent of any of it. I mean, I think that, you know, you could sit around with him in a bar and he could have conversations on all sorts of subjects. And somebody could allude to a book and make claims like that because it was a better accusation than just saying he was, you know, he had a loose tongue. 
Yes, yes. Uh, but I'm not really proposing this as, as necessarily a reason for the exile. But I do think that you can see both in the Marlowe attributed plays and the Shakespeare attributed plays a significant level of interest in philosophy, theology, oh, um, sure. questions of mor morality, questions of justice, justice versus mercy, etc., etc. And so I am tempted to say that if there were other writings, they were not plays, they were far more serious, if you like. And no, I'm not saying that this is why he was exiled, but I am saying that if you want to say, well, uh, were there any other works, I would say they are more likely to be in that sort of vein and unlikely to have survived the centuries. Well, in, a, in addition to which Whitgift, you know, suppressed a bunch of work in 1598 right. yeah. as well. Right. And along with Nash and other volumes, stuff like that would have found its way to a trash heap and a fire. And, yeah. Yeah. and nobody would have been, going back to what we were saying at the very beginning, nobody would have got a license to print that type of material. Right, right. No, nobody would go near it. Yeah. No. So I think, as I say, if there was anything else, I would say that that's the sort of vein you want to look in um, rather than saying, oh, he wrote the works of great long list of other Elizabethan and Jacobean playwrights. You know, he wasn't Webster, although you could say that Duchess Malfi has White Devil have finishes with some of Marlowe's work. Webster was not Marlowe. Webster was Webster and so on and so forth. And I think that's deluded, quite frankly, the idea that he wrote everyone else's work as... Uh, um... uh, Dashiell Hammett and James N. Kane and all mm -hmm. those writers of pulp detective stories, you, you know, <laughs> they weren't the same guy. They, they, no. <laughs> they, they were themselves doing their own work. And I think Marlowe did his own work. He had an able person through whom he could pass it. And people on the other end who would receive it and make use of it in the way that they had decided to do, and that man was Shakespeare. Yes, yeah, I, I would agree. Okay, um, well, that's certainly been very interesting. And just like that, we've reached the end of yet another episode. We hope you've really enjoyed being with us today, and hopefully you'll be with us for another installment when we can discover what else is hidden in plain sight.